Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To Matthew chapter 28, we will be spending our time taking a look at the Great Commission this morning. So as you turn there, I want to call your attention to a, a, uh, an individual at near the end of World War II. His name, I'm probably going to mispronounce it because I don't speak Japanese, Hiro Unada, who was, a, was commissioned by his commanding officer during World War II to gather intelligence and engage in guerrilla warfare against the Allies near the Philippine Islands. So ever the faithful soldier, this young man of 26 and three others with him, fought uh, and engaged the Allied forces near the end of World War II in the Pacific Theater. However, what was unknown to Hero and his fellow soldiers at the time is that the, of, is, was of the atomic bombs in the end of the war. And the end of the war happened, but they had no idea. So he and his fellow soldiers continued to, to fight for many years afterwards. Notes by the villagers that were, were telling Hero and his fellow soldiers, like, hey, you know what, you guys can go ahead and come out of the woods. The war's over. The war's done. They're like, this is an allied trick. This is, this is their trick to get us out of the woods and to stop fighting. So they dismissed it. There was pamphlets that were dropped by the allies to get these individuals to stop fighting. Well, many years later, what ends up happening is they are on a raid in a village, and they are attempting to burn some crops, and one of Hero's final soldiers is, is killed by the police force there. And then all of a sudden, it, it dawns on them that there are still people who think World War II is, is going on. So what happens is a young Japanese explorer goes and finds Hero in the woods of this particular island and kind of hears his story and everything else, and he goes and he finds his old commissioning officer. And finally, in 1974, Hiro Onoda heard about the end of World War II from his, from his commanding officer. So why call your attention to an individual like Hiro? Well, Hiro is an individual who needed to hear the good news that the war was done. He fought for almost 30 years after the end of the war because he thought it was still going on. Carl F.H. Henry, a contemporary of Billy Graham, once had made this comment. The gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. So the church's faithfulness to proclaiming the gospel message is central to our identity, what it is that we are to be about. So how faithful are we to obeying the great commission of Jesus? So this morning, what we're going to consider is our marching orders, the commission of our master and commander, our savior and lord, so what is it that Christians are to be about? One of the things that I often go back to, considering the Great Commission, is that I need to keep the main thing the main thing. Because uh, it's easy to get distracted in the, world, in the 21st century, right? It's easy to get top, pulled in all sorts of different directions. Work, family, sports, entertainment, hobbies, technology, etc. And often for me, I, I need to go back to the basics and remind myself what it is that I'm to be about as a Christian. So by way of reminder, let's take a look again at the Great Commission of Christ. So Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commission of Christ is pretty short, but it has three components to this particular uh, commission. So we will take a look at the two assurances and the command. And we'll just follow this passage in logical order. But what is the main idea of this passage? What is it that it's trying to drive home? It's simply this. In light of Jesus' authority and presence, we make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching for obedience. So we're going to work through the commission in that order. So let me say that again. In light of Jesus' authority and presence, we make disciples by going, baptizing, teaching for obedience. So let's take a look at the first part of this. We've picked this up in verse 18. Point one, it's our commander's authority. Our commander's authority. So Jesus gathers all his disciples. We read this in verse 18. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know if we really think about that, but there's no iota of authority that Christ is lacking. He has all authority. Abraham Kuyper Reflecting upon this, once said, there is not a square inch over the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not cry, mine. All authority belongs to Christ. All things belong to him. We maybe don't think too much or think all that often of, of the authority of Christ, but here we're reminded of his positional authority that he has received from the Father. I want you to recognize this, that this is a received authority that he has at post-resurrection. Paul explains a little more detail, Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here we're told that there's not going to, there's all, all knees, all tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord. And one of the titles of Christ that we often think about is that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's no missing component of the authority of Christ under which his reign does not extend. Which is why in verse 19 he makes the comment that we are to go to all nations. Those nations fall under his authority. And if we don't recognize our king, we would be a rebel. So who would think of rebelling against their boss or perhaps a superior, the president, a commanding officer? If we wouldn't consider rebellion even against earthly authorities, how much more over the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, growing up, I remember something that was called the Lordship Controversy. Some of you guys are, probably remember this. Some thought that there was kind of a two-component, two-part salvation, where there'd be one t at one point in time, there, you would accept Christ as your Savior, and then later on in life, you could make him your Lord. But Scripture doesn't know of that division. If you're going to receive Christ, receive Jesus, you're going to receive all of him. You, you receive him in all of his fullness, not just the parts you like. You can't have a piecemeal Jesus. It kind of reminds me of the Ricky Bobby who just likes the sweet baby Jesus. 
That's not the part of Jesus that you get to like. You get to like all of him or not just part of him. So I was thinking of all the excuses that we often give for why we disobey this commission of Christ. And they, they wouldn't even fly, I think, with, with many of our earthly authorities. Let me give you some of the ones that reasons that we give for maybe why we don't go forward with the commission. Fear of rejection. If I share the gospel with somebody else, people will reject me. Well, imagine if you told your boss if you're in sales, you know, I don't like my job in sales because people tell me no. You're probably not going to be in sales very long uh, because you're, that's your job, and you're going to hear no from time to time. So another excuse that we often give is maybe a feel of failure. If I share Jesus, I might not do it right. Well, fear of failure is not, a, not an excuse for not working. You're not going to say, you know what, boss, I'm scared of doing the trim job over there on that, that painting thing. Because if I, if, I if I do the trim job, I might not do it right. So, you know, I'm going to let you take over. You're probably not going to have an employment as a painter very long as well. What about fear of looking foolish? Well, if I do this, I, I might, people will think I'm weird. Um, if I begin to talk about Jesus, people think I'm, gonna, I'm this weird person, uh, this Jesus freak. Well, do you say the same thing when you have to wear a uniform that maybe looks a little funny? Um, no, we, we want that employment. So I'm kind of thinking of many of these are just excuses, smoke screens for why we don't obey Christ. See, I think uh, when it comes to the authority of Christ, we, we often kind of, since he's removed from us in the, in the sense, not, not in a, I guess, real sense, but often we don't see him per se like we do our earthly bosses. If for whatever reason, it's easier for us to disobey and not fulfill the commission that we, that we have. So Jesus is our master and commander, our king, and we obey his directives, his orders. Not only that, we go into the world to let them know, hey, you have a king, and his name is Jesus, and you need to worship and submit to him. But what are specifically are the orders of Christ? I've been alluding to them. What is this command that Christ is giving us? So point one is we have the authority of Christ. He has all authority. Point number two is his orders, our commander's orders. In verse 19 and 20, there's one command and three participles. The participles are the answer to the question, how do you do the command? The one command is found in verse 19. Verse 19, it says, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples there is the command. Oftentimes, when uh, this passage was preached to me, I often heard this as a child in missions conferences, and the word that was emphasized was, was go. But really, the main verb is make disciples. That's the, the point of emphasis here. So the point of being a disciple of Christ is to make more disciples of Christ. That's the main task of a disciple maker. So that should make you ask, what in the world is a disciple? Thankfully, Jesus didn't leave us in the dark. Uh, he didn't, he didn't like, pretend like he, we didn't know what a disciple was, but we could spend all day talking about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But simply put, it's a learner, an imitator, somebody who seeks to become like their master. So then how do we do that? How do we make more disciples? Well, Jesus gave us three participles, three things that are included on how it is that we make disciples. Those components are going, baptizing, and teaching. Or put another way, the Great Commission's mandate includes conversion, identification, and maturation. So we're going to take those in logical order. The first one being go. The, the, the how verse 19 starts go, it's, actually, it's a participle, going, it could be translated as well. And it's a 
what it is included in a person's conversion. So a new disciple of Christ needs to go into the world to find non-Christians who will become Christians. Jesus says this mandate is for all the nations, all the people groups, which means both at home and abroad, both, uh, both here in, in Sterling, Colorado, and in India. We seek the conversion of sinners no matter their geographical location. One of the odd things I think that happens to us when we become Christians is that it's very easy to begin to get in a Christian bubble. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like all your friends and family and close, close people that you associate with are only Christians. So for example, when I attended Christian college, it was really hard to know a non-Christian. That's everybody that was there I seemed to know was a, was a Christian. But when I was in high school, I maybe had two or three Christian friends, but then I had a very large class of non-Christians. So sometimes I think we need to be careful that we don't become insulated from non-Christians entirely. We become a holy huddle as opposed to ambassadors. Paul describes our role to the non-Christian world as ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. This is what he says. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul describes Christians here as ambassadors to Christ. So let's think a little bit about the role of an ambassador. One of the roles of the ambassador is to be a representative, a representation of the nation or sovereign that he or she represents. So bearing the name of Christ, we are his representatives in a watching world. If foreigners are going to know something of Christ or a non-Christian is going to know something of Christ, it is only natural that they look to his ambassadors. But not only do we represent, we also have a message. The ambassador also has a message of his sovereign. And what is that message, according to Paul here? It's that they need to be reconciled to God through Christ. It's to share the gospel to sinners. That is the message of reconciliation. So let's be honest with ourselves at this moment in time. When is the last time you actually shared the gospel with somebody? How long has it been since you had a conversation with somebody and engaged them with the gospel message? How many conversations have you had this past year, even regarding eternal matters? God, Jesus, salvation, things of uh, eternal importance. Making disciples means that we have to be intentional about our proclamation of the gospel. So, we're getting close to the new year. A lot of you guys do resolutions. I have a goal or resolution for you if you want to, if you want to work on this one. Have a gospel, one gospel, eternal conversation with a non-Christian once a week. I realize that sharing the full gospel may not come up naturally in conversation, but I at least think opening the subject matter towards important, eternal things is a good way to get there. Let me just give you one thought on how you might be able to do that. And it's simply this, ask questions. For some, for some of us, all we need to do is just ask somebody, hey, why do you get up in the morning? Or what, what do you get excited about? What gives you meaning in life? What gives you the purpose in life? It's those kind of questions. 
and it just could be, you know, over lunch or something like that, or somebody's really uh, talking about their family or something along those lines, and you just ask them a question to kind of probe why they think family is important or what gets them excited and meaning in life. The goal is not simply is to get the person thinking and talking about eternal and ultimate matters, not just the surface level conversations we often have. Listen, engage that conversation, and before long, uh, a this not a non-Christian will often ask you, "Well, what makes you excited in life, or why do you get up in the morning?" Which gives you a natural opportunity to share the good news. The point is, I'm, is to go beyond those surface-level conversations. I think about many of the conversations I have. A lot of them uh, are, are along the lines of, how about them Broncos? Uh, I mean, those are very surface-level conversations. It's the, asking those more deeper-level questions to begin to engage on, in eternal matters. So, resolution, one gospel eternal conversation with a non-Christian a week. And seek accountability in the goal. It's not good enough for you to have that goal and not share it with somebody else. Ask somebody else, to, hey, you know what? I'm going to really attempt to share the gospel with one person this week. I want you to hold me accountable to that and expect them to ask you about your success on that particular goal. So if the first part of how we make disciples is going, how is it once let's suppose that a non-Christian does accept Christ, praise the Lord, what happens then? How do we make a disciple? Well, Jesus gives the second participle of this command, which is baptizing. Baptizing or identification. So in the words of Jesus, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why the emphasis on baptism? Well, baptism is a public identification ceremony with the Christian faith. And I praise God that this past month we've celebrated several baptisms. But even so, the, grave, the, the grammar here is, stated, is stating that we are baptized into the name. The point of the baptismal ceremony is that it's a naming ceremony. A good example that we might be a little more familiar with is like an oath of allegiance for, for uh, foreigners who become citizens of the United States. In a ceremony, a, a, a potential new citizen has completed all the requirements needed for citizenship, and then he or she needs to swear oaths of allegiance to the United States of America. Another way to think about it is when somebody joins the military or law enforcement, there's often an oath ceremony where they begin to identify themselves in that new position. And baptism is this identification in this new position in the family of God. It's that solemn ordinance that Christ has given us in which we identify the, who belongs to the church. That is why it's stated that baptism is the first act of obedience. Once, once one realizes he or she is a Christian, he or she should seek baptism. This is why in Acts, for example, Peter finishes his sermon uh, and people respond in this way. So Peter shares the gospel. The people want to respond and this is how they respond. Now when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, Peter draws a close attention here to our close connection between initial conversion and 
and identification. First one believes and repents, and then one is baptized. So what does this mean for us in our disciple-making mandate? We're told to make disciples. The first part's going, sharing the gospel with others. The second part it is about baptizing. So what does that look like for, for, for us? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with us helping that new Christian join a local church. Join a local church, getting engaged and involved, and begin to identify themselves as a Christian. Baptism is the reason that we uh, insist on it for membership in our church as well. Uh, if, we, if we have been saved and regenerated, then we would want one to identify one, uh, oneself as such. And if you have not yet been baptized and consider yourself a Christian, why not do so soon? So supposing then that a person then has, has convert, been converted, one has gone and, and made a new disciple, and they have been baptized, they've joined a local church, what, what next? What's the final aspect that Jesus gives us about making disciples? The third part here is teaching or maturation. Jesus tells us in, at the, end of, or the beginning of verse 20 there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So not only did Jesus tell us that we need to teach, but he kind of gives us the method, what it is that the content, the content of what it is that we're to, to teach. First, we are to teach all. Can't pick our favorite parts, parts that we would like to teach, but we're to teach all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus' teaching was meant to be reproducible. He taught his disciples so that they would teach others who would teach others who would teach others. But more broadly, I think the all could refer to the entirety of the word of God. We are to teach Genesis, Revelation, the entire counsel of God. For example, Paul would tell the Ephesian elders this in Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So a Christian disciple making then is word-centric. Disciples are not made from apart from the word of God. There's a lots of things that we could call discipleship, but Jesus, Paul, and the apostles clearly believe that disciples are made through the word. And I also want you to notice that in verse 20, we teach them not only to have the content, the information, but we are to teach them to observe. Another way to, that you could think about to observe all the commands of Christ is to obey. We observe the commands of Jesus is the simple obedience to what it is that scriptures command us to do. Jesus gives us commands, not just suggestions. So in light of the authority in, that Jesus has claimed in verse 18, so we have all authority and on heaven on earth has been given to me, and then he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a natural symmetry there as well. So if Jesus' expectations are clear of us, why are we maybe so complacent in obeying? You know, one of the things I was thinking about in Christian college, there's, there's a danger that we can get uh, tied into real quickly. And I think it's also a danger that we could have in, in the church, which is it's we have knowledge, we have information without obedience. It's head knowledge without life transformation. This is the person who hears the commands, the word of God, knows all these things, but just doesn't live it or doesn't act like it makes any difference in their life. I knew of students in college who get a lot, give all the right answers, but their hearts were far from the Lord. The, this, uh, I, I was thinking like in our church, what it might look like is the person who just wants to go to Bible study and, and listen to sermons, and, uh, but they don't have faithful Christian living. They love hearing information, 
but having a life transformed is something they maybe aren't as interested in. The point of learning scripture isn't just for informational content, but it's for life transformation. I think many of us are probably educated beyond the level of our obedience. Many of us have way more information about scripture than we are obeying. But I don't think that there's a dichotomy between information and transformation. It's a both and. You need the information, but also the life transformation. It's right doctrine leading to right practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So the Great Commission is a commission not just for leadership, but for all Christians. So how is your obedience to the commission? Are you making disciples? Are you sharing your faith? Helping new Christians join a church, learn what it means to identify oneself as a Christian. Are you teaching them and leading them and helping them to obey? Given the authority of Christ, all authority and on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And we have this authority of Christ. We have this commission, this mandate of Christ to go to all nations. It's a great and seemingly impossible task. You might be feeling overwhelmed, which is why I think Christ closes his commission the way he does in verse 20. He gives us his guarantee. So we have our commander's authority, our commander's orders, and then our commander's guarantee. The commission starts with Jesus and ends with Jesus. He says this, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We recently celebrated Christmas earlier this week, and one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the greatest and repeated promises of Scripture is the God we serve is, is with us in our serving. For example, do you remember Pastor Sean uh, earlier when in, in Exodus mentioning that when Moses was preparing to enter into Egypt to deliver the people of Israel, that his presence was going to go with Moses? Exodus three ten through 12. God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. Joshua has a very similar experience. As he's preparing to lead the people into the promised land, God promises Joshua in Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. We could look at many of the heroes of the Old Testament and New Testament. Anytime God commissions somebody, he promises them his presence. The promise of God, of his presence, is given to the people of God who are on the mission of God. What it means is that we're not alone in the task. The triune God is at work in us and also in work at work in the world. And we get to see God accomplishes his purposes through us as we go on his mission. God often uses human means to accomplish his divine ends. God has included us in his covenant, and he uses the people in the church to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're not alone in this, right? We have the Holy Spirit giving us power, and through the Holy Spirit we have access to to Christ and to Father. It's no coincidence, I think, that Jesus mentions the Trinity in baptism. The Trinity is also engaged in this commission. 
And this promise of Christ then, that he is with us always, gives us great assurance and courage. Thinking back to Joshua, Joshua preparing to enter the promised land. You can see, you can, I can begin to, I guess, put myself in the, in the place of Joshua here. Here you've been serving under Moses for many years. Moses was, or Joshua was Moses' assistant. And you have this vast territory that you are to conquer. Probably feeling pretty intimidated that I have this vast territory that I'm supposed to go lead all these people and conquer. God has just promised me his presence. And then God tells Joshua this in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In that shared mission that we have with God, we have courage, not because we are so great, because, but because God is so great. It's not as if Jesus is up in heaven dictating commands and saying, good luck with that, have fun with this, but he is engaged with us in this mission. We have a high king of heaven on our side, which I think got to give us great motivation, great boldness in sharing the good news. He is a good and caring king who serves alongside of his people. So we can have courage to go and share. And our courage also comes knowing that our God is greater than what's going on in the world. Which is why John would write in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And some of the greatest leaders in history are those who lead at the front. For example, uh, when I was... Thinking, uh, I mentioned Hero from World War II. I also was thinking of another World War II figure. His name is Lieutenant Winters of Easy Company, who was a paratrooper. He, he led a, the Easy Company during the, the battles of D-Day, the D-Day invasion and the Battle of the Bulge. And his men were fiercely loyal to him, and they accomplished great deeds together. But one of the things that he was well known for is that he was a leader who led at the front. He wouldn't sit safe in a foxhole and say, hey, you guys go take that hill. He would join alongside his men and go take that hill with them. One of his most renowned feats is that he and a band of 13 soldiers went and assaulted a German battery of 50, and they won. His success was his men's success. In a similar way, Jesus doesn't sit in heaven idle. He is laboring alongside with and beside us and in us as we seek to accomplish the mission that he gave us. He not only is high king, he is also a kind king who knows that we need him to accomplish what it is that he's given us to do. And one of the most important things that we can do then about fulfilling the Great Commission is to pray. We pray because we know apart from Christ this is impossible. The task would be too much. The task is too much. Our attempts would fall flat. But we pray because we know that we need divine help, divine power to get the job done. Jesus is willing and able to aid. Would we seek him? Would we implore his aid in our endeavors? Our mission is quite simple then. It's in the light of authority and presence of, of Christ we make disciples. So as we approach the new year, I would urge you and remind you as the people of God that we need to be about our business of accomplishing the mission of God. Let us, not, let us be a church that actually that grows because of our commitment to reach the lost. 
And given the great encouragement that we have because of the presence of Christ, let us take courage, overcome some of those fears I mentioned earlier, and proclaim the gospel to the nations. So this moment in time, I would like to ask all of us to uh, go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes, and just ask the Lord to just bring to mind some of those people that he may be calling you to share the good news of the gospel with. Jesus. You are enthroned on the right hand of your Father. You are the King of kings and and Lord of lords, and you have given us a mission. And Lord, as your people who want to be faithful to the mission that it is that you have given us to do, help us to boldly share the gospel, knowing that you are laboring with and alongside and beside us. Lord Jesus, may many come to know you because of our faithfulness to share the good news with others. Jesus, We ask this all in your name. Amen.